You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. It's funny, what we're 170 episodes in. And 170 episodes ago, we decided to start recording our chats because we thought people would be interested. Mm -hmm. Along the way, we've started going to races and seeing people, and we always get the same comment, which is, I know I haven't seen you in a year, but I feel like I know everything that's going on in your life. Yeah. People feel very invested in our lives at this point. Maybe not very invested, but to some level, some people are intrigued by what's going on with us, and they feel like they know us. Mm-hmm. So today, I think is going to be a, a life update episode. Yeah, I think we're we're kind of due for that, aren't we, Bracken? Yeah, it's good to see your face again. It's been two weeks, by the way. It's good to see yours. Yeah, I have not seen Kirk. This is the longest I've gone without seeing you mm-hmm. since we started. Yeah, but we did have we did have a good catch up chat yesterday for what like an hour, I think. Yeah, touched base. You uh, and it was needed. Yeah. You were the glue that kept the podcast together these last two weeks. You've been missing these sirens? No. No, I have <laughs> not. No. no. Uh, before we get into it, I was out on the lake early this morning. I know. I had a little um, fishing envy. Bracken sent me a photo of this uh, small northern pike. I mean, I know it's small because what you do is you compare the size of the fish to the size of your hands. And first, I know you don't have big hands. Second of all, the fish didn't look very big in your hands, but you held it out three feet towards the camera like a smart fisherman photo op would do. So, Well, I only did that for you. Oh, you did? Yeah. I also then took a picture of me releasing it, and I showed Braden and Ayla and Mira the picture of the northern this morning. They said, whoa, you caught that? So it looks like it's about as big as my arm. And then I showed them the next picture, which is me releasing it. And they said, and what about that little one? (laughs) <laughs> so that's the same fish kids and that's what i learned from kirk dewint that's funny did you did uh did your your dad wanted to go out fishing with you guys this morning right yeah so today i guess would be the final day of uh the family reunion for for the for the funeral for my grandma's funeral and so macaulay flies back tomorrow morning so this is the his last day and so he wanted to my dad wanted to spend a little boys time this morning so we got out on the lake you know at sunrise this morning and got a couple hours of fishing and then came back home sounds like a very kirk-esque thing to do on a monday morning i I felt like it was very fitting that we're we're picking back up you and i today and and macaulay filled in while you were gone and now we're saying goodbye to him and i was welcoming you back with the sunrise it was very very poetic i'm sure you were thinking of me as the sun was coming up i can only i did i did i we pulled up first of all i i woke up and thought well who does this kirk this is dumb this is dumb (laughs) if i'm gonna wake up early it better be for a run or a race or a flight but to go to go stand on the water i don't know that's It's not something I ever do. And then when we got to the lake and it was just calm as glass and the sun's coming up over it, I thought, this is what Kirk looks out on every morning now. Maybe I get it. It's true. It's true. The the fishing or the deer hunting alarm is always like the worst. It really is because, you know, you don't know what the day is even going to bring. But once you're out there and that sun starts creeping up and there's like this odd, serene energy in the world and everything seems to slow down, 
that's my favorite. And then working, like waking up early is absolutely. Yeah. And there's only one other boat, only one other boat out on the lake. We had the, it was just calm. It was just us. And it was, it was nice. Sounds wonderful. Bracken. I, my first two hits, I brought it all the way to the boat and it, it disengaged. You need a good net man. I think I need a good set in the hook, man. Mm-hmm. I probably do. Yeah. A little more wrist action bracket and get to work. Yeah. These frail little hands. Uh-huh. All right. Well, I was running, folks. I have not given up on my, my exercising. I was out doing a little interval workout this morning. So I've still been keeping up with my fitness the best I can. Don't you worry. So that's what I was doing this morning, bracket. That's good. Mm-hmm. I ran a hard 5K. I don't know what you would call it. Well above threshold, a little below a time trial with Macaulay the other night. And? And it was it was fun. It is so much better running with people than alone when How you're trying to you do something hard. Uh, we went 528, 532, and then I took a tenth of a mile break and then rejoined in the last mile was probably another. He, I think he went 524 or something like that. That would have come out to right about 17 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, mm-hmm. I think I, I was 17, 18, and I had a, a tenth of a mile jog in there. Nice. Float, maybe. Call float. Sounds cool. Yeah. I don't want to end the workout, but I didn't have the fitness to finish it all the way through without turning it into like a a puke bucket type effort. So I floated for a quarter. There's a, there's a point where you go down around a lagoon and rejoin on the other side, and he went wide hard and i floated the short route and rejoined mm-hmm. them floating when you use the term float in a workout even though it's really just like some sort of like high-end active rest it sounds like it's on purpose like float yeah. like oh that was on purpose i took that float there so i'll stick with i'd stick with that if i were you yeah two yeah. mile hard one mile float or one tenth float 0.7 hard whatever it was totally looks like a real workout in reality i couldn't keep up Nobody needs to know that except everybody listening. <laughs> That's right. Should uh, should we jump into this thing, Bracken? Let's jump in. People want to know where you've been. Yeah. If we were, if we were, we had we had some people concerned we were giving up. Oh, we're certainly not giving up. I um I just went internal for a for let's call it ten days, week and a half, two weeks. I was, as you mentioned, I was in the hospital for. Roughly 48 hours. That was, I guess, a week and a half ago. Now I was in there for, for two days and then came out and really needed to focus on me and my health and getting better. So that's where I was. And, and the podcast was just, a, was just a bit of a stressor and I was not feeling very well at all to the point where like, I don't think I could have put together anything anybody would want to listen to. So we agreed. <clears throat> we agreed to push it back um, to this week, and so now we're finally getting back into the swing of things. But yeah, it's been a journey. We, Bracken, you and I talked about this, I think, at length yesterday. So if I like repeat some of the stuff I talked to you about, I think it's probably important for talking about what's been going on on my end. So hopefully, you can tolerate that. Absolutely. That right. People should. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think people should have been a fly on the wall for about half that conversation. So now we'll just give them that opportunity to do so. Yeah. Well, I think like, you know, I think I've said this a number of times, like I I didn't want to make this podcast about us and I've tried very adamantly not to. And, and I think I, 
I probably do a worse job of talking about myself than you do on this podcast. I tend to dodge questions or move on a little bit faster than you. And I just don't think this is something I can dodge or move on from. So I think it's just kind of important to talk about. Maybe people will get something out of this today too. So well, certainly um, some will. I hope so. It's not a unique problem. It feels like it when you're going through it though. You know what I mean? It really, it really does. You kind of feel alone and isolated, which is interesting um, for me because I've always felt very supported in my life and I have a great family and friends and people who, you know, love me and care about me. So, but it's still like a very alone feeling thing. So I don't know, should we just rip the bandaid off of this one or what do you, what do you want to do? I mean, this is your, this is your boat today. Steer us. Oh, captain, my captain. Now you're the moderator, Brack, and everybody knows the quality of the interview is based on who's doing the interview, right? The inter- right? You know how it works? You know, I always thought so until we had people like Steven Menya come on a, uh, a interview that we're allegedly hosting and just carry us <laughs> the entire time. <laughs> so I, I, I now firmly believe the best thing an interviewer can do is stay out of his own damn way. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a produ- I don't know why I go back to this so so often, but I've learned a lot of lessons through it. And when I was back on The Bachelor, the the days <clears throat> I was talking to one of the casting producers, and I said, "Well, isn't that like a lot of pressure to pick the Bachelor or the Bachelorette? Like you, the whole season rides on this one human being guiding the whole experience for the viewers. Like, what if you get in, you lay an egg with your choice?" And they said, "Oh no, no, Kirk, you don't understand." The brilliance of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette is the casting of the 25. The quarterback is merely a side note. It is the brilliance of the casting is in people like you who actually carry the show. We can fill the void with anybody as long as we have the right, you know, cast members. Meaning like if you have the right guest, does really the host even matter? So maybe maybe I could subscribe to that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, that we hit number 170. It just feels like a nice round, big number. And if I've learned something over 170, it's that the best interviews are the ones where I speak the least. And the guest mm-hmm. is just keeping people rolling along on this story that they're telling us. Yeah. I've thought the same thing. Um, all right. Well, I'll jump into it. So I'm going to rip the bandaid off here and then I'll kind of explain what I've been going through. But um, last week, uh, I went into the hospital for alcohol detox rack. And that's, that's what I was away for. Um, I checked myself in. Um, it wasn't an intervention. It wasn't um, anything in which people in my life thought that it was definitely necessary. Um, I had been open, very open about this with my girlfriend, Jess, and something I had been working on. Um And I think everything came to a head for me. And collectively, we drove to the hospital to a detox unit um, at one of the hospitals here in Minneapolis. Um, And that's where I was for that, those two days. Um, And so I think that would be why we missed our Friday episode two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. I believe. And And then thereafter was what we call withdrawal and we'll call detox or recovery. And in in that state of mind, um, I wasn't quite able to pull it together in order to chat with you. So so there, the Band-Aid is ripped off. That is where I was. It feels uh, difficult to admit and difficult to say 
um, especially to people who I really care about listening and appreciate the support of. I know um, hearing that might be a little off-putting to some of our listeners, and I'll try to explain the best I can, but that would be why I was I was in the hospital. Um, there's a lot of asterisks by this and a lot of caveats, I would say, but um, that's why I was in the hospital. So for those of you who sent messages um, hoping I was feeling okay, I got a lot of those. Thank you. Um, it was a very serious situation, I would say. Like, it's not something to foo-foo. In fact, it's more dangerous than a lot of other situations you could go to the hospital for. So those messages were were super help, helpful. So thank you. But that would be the that'd be the very tip, very tip of the iceberg as to what was going on. Well, you messaged me the day prior and said, "Hey, man, there's something I need to tell you." And and as of that point, I was unaware of any of your process or your struggles or anything you were going through. You've played this very close to the chest other than with Jess. And, and you told me I, I might, I'm going to be cutting out alcohol completely and I may end up in the hospital with this. And when you told me that I didn't understand what you really meant. Yeah, I assumed I might have to just go like be physically separated from the source. And I just, the temptation and I need to talk to people about this and do whatever that entails. I didn't understand what, what alcohol dependent, that you were alcohol dependent for survival at that point. I didn't understand the true detox process. So I didn't, I thought it was serious enough that you were willing to tell me about it, but I didn't understand the the actual physical ramifications of what you're about to do. And then what 12 hours later, you were in the hospital because there you didn't feel like there was another physical option. I didn't realize the true toll you were, it was taking on you physically. I didn't either, Bracken. Yeah, it seems like it came to a head, like obviously this built for a long time and I don't know how far mm-hmm. back it goes and I don't know how far back you've established it yet, but it seems to have crescendoed and done so rapidly. Recently, recently, yes. Um the last two weeks had been kind of a spiral for me. I can see you want to say something. No, no. I'm, okay. I feel like even though we talked about this, I'm still like anticipating whatever you're going to say, like l- looking forward to it because this is, this is as, this is only one week newer to the audience than it is to me. And so right, I'm still yeah. very uh, murky <laughs> on everything you're going through. Yeah. Well, it was, I didn't necessarily know what I was going through or going to go through, but I knew I'd been trying on my own to kick this very diligently. Um, and I was failing miserably. Um, you know, even Jim, it was very open. I wasn't hiding this from Jess who I live with. We had a Kirk's progress sheet pinned up in my kitchen. And anytime I poured a drink, it was an ounce and a half of liquor was one tally mark. And my idea was to reduce every day, by one or two drinks and get myself off of this. Um, <clears throat> it worked for a little while, but ultimately um, I was up against the biggest mountain I've ever, I've ever climbed. And, and I want to preface this conversation with, um, well, well, first of all, any, this could happen to anybody as I found out, but you know, me having a problem with, with drinking recently um, doesn't devalue any conversation I've ever had with you on this podcast. It doesn't mean I've been drinking during podcasts. It doesn't mean like I have not been myself because I have been myself through this all. 
Um, <clears throat> alcohol wasn't one of those things that changed me as a human, to be honest. Like I still showed up for work. I still provided for people and my athletes in a very clear mind most of the time. Um, but towards the end here, it started to win. So like, I just don't want people to think that I was wandering around life in a stupor and giving them some sort of like faded out version of myself. Cause that's definitely not the case. Um, so I wanted to preface that. And then, um, well, I can attest to that. I don't think I'm here to cover this with a smoke screen or anything. I'm yeah. treating this conversation the same way as all of ours, which is like, we've been, we've been pretty honest with people from the start. And I think they deserve that. But I had zero clue. You know, our conversations, the tone didn't change, the content didn't change. And so I I think it was part of why I didn't grasp the severity of your physical state. And I, and I obviously can't speak to your mental state because I don't know that. But you've just given me the stats on the physical toll it took. Yeah. It was, I didn't understand any of that because I didn't, I didn't have, there was no outward manifestation to me. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming I see you as much as anyone that doesn't live near you sees you. And right. I had no clue whatsoever. Well, and that's why, why I could get away with it for so long, Bracken, is because I've become a master of living that life, not intentionally and not by design and not by contriving any sort of scheme to do so, just because all I knew is I wasn't going to let it affect my life. And I didn't until it did, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And so... So yeah. I guess I want to I want to start with the last two weeks, and I understand that that will be a bit of like an abrupt. It's like starting a, a novel towards the end. Right. Yeah, but I want to do that and give people an idea of what these last two weeks were, and then we can build backwards or pick up from the beginning of of whenever it started to become what it is. But I feel like I I wanted to know, and I and I know people will want to know exactly like what what the end point was for you. So two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whenever that, that escalation point happened, let's, let's just like clinically describe it from there. Well, I would like to, to just preface that with today is day 12 for me without a drink. Um, we're recording on Monday, September 27th. It's day 12. It's, uh, the first time in over three years in which I had not had a drink at some point throughout the day. Um, mostly as a nightcap. I think I've been pretty open about my love of whiskey. And I was open about it because I didn't even recognize I necessarily had a problem until I did. And so um, day 12 today, which might not sound like a lot to you guys, but if you were living the life I just lived the last two weeks, days feel like years and hours feel like months and minutes feel like hours when you are going through withdrawal. So um, <clears throat> so what had happened is... Um, what really spiraled me here, which I realized I needed help beyond what I could do on my own was uh, my girlfriend, Jess, who has been my biggest supporter. She's been my rock through this. She even took the first week off of work to be with me as I was going through withdrawal, which is um, the most miserable experience any human can ever, ever experience. I've been through a lot of suffering in my life, including on the race course and off. Uh, Nothing compares to the suffering of alcohol withdrawal. Um, But she had gone to a wedding and um, and she came back and got sick uh, almost immediately. And she gave that to me. I woke up with a sore throat, not feeling well. And I'm also going to say that over the last year, especially since COVID hit and I went through a 12 week stint where I was working from home, uh, me and her enjoy having like a good time. And I say in a good time. And when I say good time, that is synonymous with 
also having a drink in your hand. It's just like the way we have been. Um, and, and I think things rooted back to then where we started like, oh, I'm done with my work at three in the afternoon. Let's pour a drink. We're at home and kind of on vacation. And I think that's when it really started for me. Um, but anyways, uh, so she went to a wedding, got sick, came home. And I started feeling sick a few days later. And for me, um, and we're going to get into this, I think a little bit, but, but alcohol started, like, I haven't really hit in that. Like, I don't feel very well all the time. And I have a lot of GI issues that are pretty debilitating at times. And um, I had realized I had leaned on, on alcohol at times to just like try to forget about that. It calmed my stomach temporarily in the long run, it made it worse. And I realized I started looking to it as a crutch when I wasn't feeling well, especially to put me to sleep when I had stomach problems, which seemed to be more and more often, which I think is a catch 22 because alcohol clearly isn't good for your stomach. And although it was a temporary band aid in the long run, it's made things much worse for me, which you can see would be a snowball effect. And so I started not feeling well and Jess went up to visit her family in International Falls, which is on the Canadian border. I was sick. I didn't want to go and get anybody else sick. And I was at home over the weekend and somehow I started self-medicating, which is what I kind of knew with my stomach issues. And I was really feeling sick. I got COVID tested. It wasn't COVID. And that weekend really got away from me without Jess around. And so um, I, I don't know how or why, but I was like, God, I feel like shit. I need to take a nap. And I took a drink or two and I was able to fall asleep and sleep it off, so to speak. But and that was probably three weeks ago, I would say, is what that was. Um, up into that point, Bracken, my nightcaps were probably three fingers, which is probably three shots, maybe a little extra. You know, sometimes I poured a little extra, which would be four. And that was at bare minimum the last three years, nights before races, big workouts, any of that. Um, and at worst, since moving to the lake, you know, you see on Instagram this life, like, and it's a life I've worked very hard to build um, towards this lake life and waking up on the lake and how great and glorious it is. And it's been nice, but it also is the straw that broke this camel's back as far as feeling like you're on vacation and all of my bad habits coming out. And so that all kind of came to a head this last few weeks. And, um, I ended up sort of self-medicating while Jess was gone. What does that mean? I ended up sort of self-medicating. What did that look like for you? Well, it meant I basically drank myself to stoop to passing out to go to bed. I didn't feel well. I was running a fever, which is obviously the wrong thing to do. But I just uh, what ends up happening in this cycle of alcohol and and then sobering up and then alcohol is is your nervous system becomes so dependent on being suppressed by alcohol that when you take alcohol away, your nervous system fires like you've had 10 cups of coffee to that point of being really uncomfortable in your own skin, to the point in which your borderline panic attack and anxiety. And so every time I would sober up in quotes, the drink would wear off, I would go into horrible panic and anxiety, and I would fight it like hell and I would go for a run and try to run it off. But ultimately, somehow I found myself in the trap of being chemically dependent. And so I would fight it like hell and I would get to four hours and then six hours and sometimes eight or 12. And I would feel so, so terrible that I feel like I was just going to keel over and and die. And so I knew one quick fix was to pour a drink and I fought it as hard as I could. And I fought it, but I couldn't live feeling that shitty. 
And so I poured another one four to six hours later. Dull it for a bit and then I'll get back on it. Dull it for a bit and I'll try better. And, and, and man, Jess came home after that weekend and I, and I said, Jess, we got to, we got to figure this thing out. Like I wasn't hiding. She said, how are you doing? You know, she'd call me every night and I said, I'm drinking. I can't not, I'm trying hun, but like, I can't kick it. And she just said, I love you and I'll be home and we'll figure out a plan. And, and so, um, she came home and we made Kirk's progress sheet with smiley faces on it and all those things. And you can do it, honey, and all that. And, and she was checking in on me all the time. And yeah, that weekend I drank a bottle a day. Uh, if you're wondering, um, and not cause I wanted to No, no alcoholic wants to drink alcohol. I promise you. I, I didn't want to at all. I didn't even crave it. It was like a necessary poison to temporarily fix things. And so she came home, um, we made Kirk's progress sheet. Uh, I'd come off of drinking a bottle a day for like that Saturday and Sunday. I think that Friday too. And then I think I had 12 drinks on day one measured drinks, eight drinks on day two, six drinks on day three. And day three on six drinks was the most absolute miserable day of my life. I woke up in panic in the sweats with my heart rate at 150 or 20 beats a minute at 3 a.m. Completely almost, I wouldn't call seizing, but um, heavy withdrawals. And I woke up at 3 a.m. that next day, unable in, in to function in complete panic. And I went to the kitchen and grabbed a drink. And I came back to bed and my body went, oh. And then from there on, I basically sustained with 12 to 15 drinks a day for the remainder of that week, only to just keep me from going into full-blown panic mode as medicine is what it was. Um, I was tallying. I tallied for four days at about 12 to 15 drinks a day. And then I looked at Jess and I said, Jess, we need to stop tallying. This is not helping me. In fact, I'm feeling worse about myself. So we ripped that sheet up and I said, I think we need to have a real a real conversation here about what I'm going through. And so, um, so that's when we talked, we reached out to alcohol detox facilities. We reached out to alcohol recovery programs, got approved by insurance for a detox. Um, basically I, I got through to that. Um, and then on Wednesday night at 10 30 PM, uh, I guess almost two weeks ago now, we drove to the ER detox facility. I drank in the car on the way over there because I was feeling so shitty. And they suggest they come in with alcohol in my system. Really? Uh, they did because they didn't want me going through withdrawals and they want me medically monitored for seizures. Um, so I showed up. I blew a 0.174, which is about where I was living the last week or week and a half just to get through. Um, and I sat in the ER from... 10.30 at night until 6.30 in the morning until they had a bed open for me in detox. Um, and then that's when I was admitted at 6.30 in the morning on zero seconds of sleep. What was that like? 10.30 at night to 6 in the morning, sitting in a waiting room? Sitting in a hospital bed in the ER. Okay. And so from that point on, I assume there wasn't any drink available in that bed from 10 a.m. to 6 a.m. or 10 p.m. to 6 a.m.? Correct. Uh, they monitored your vitals. Um, I started to go into heavy withdrawal at about 1.30 to 2.30 in the morning. It's about five or six hours after my last drink. And, and what is that like? What is a heavy withdrawal? 
my heart rate went up to into the 120s while I was laying in bed. My blood pressure went up to 180 over 100. Um, I was sweating profusely through all of my clothes. And I was laying completely still in a hospital bed. Um, I was to the point where I was basically getting up and pacing through the room. And people use this as a phrase, but unfortunately, this was true. I was banging my head against the wall in the bed uh, in so much physical pain and discomfort that you can't even tolerate it. It was what is that? like, I don't want to keep interrupting you, but I, I have no basis for framing this. What does physical pain feel like in, in withdrawal? feels like every cell in your body is going to explode and jump out through your skin. Like you're about to burst, like a balloon that you're blowing up and it's at capacity in which is about to explode. And you're reaching that point of tension in which like the tea kettle goes off and that noise is made and there's like this explosion and it feels like your body is going to completely shut down or go into seizure or convulse. Um, it is the most painfully uncomfortable thing I've ever experienced in my life. Um, it's the reason why I had to keep going back and, and drinking. And so Jess was there rubbing my back. I couldn't sleep. That wasn't an option. Um, they finally saw my vitals were so severe that they came in and gave me Valium at first five milligrams and then 10 milligrams. And that only dulled it briefly, um, to the point where like, it brought the misery from a 10 to a seven and a half. Um, and so, <clears throat> and then at that point I was in, I was admitted. They take away all your belongings. Um, when you get admitted to detox, you're not allowed to have anything, your phone, anything. I mean, they had to cut the strings off of my sweatpants if I wanted to wear them. So I wouldn't cause anybody harm. It's one of those facilities. You know what I mean? Um, they put those rubber socks on you. Scary, scary place to be. So it's yep. the kind of thing you only see in shows or movies when someone's at a place that you never want to get to. Correct. Um, took me in a wheelchair up to the sixth or seventh floor, which is the detox unit. Jess and I had a very, very tearful goodbye as I was wheeled away. When they locked that door behind you, there's no turning back. There's no alcohol. There's nothing to fix what you're used to being there to fix. I was shoved in a, in a room with a plastic bed and a plastic nightstand that was bolted to the floor with round corners. Um, synthetic lights like you'd see in a department store. And I sat there and paced back and forth like a crazy person for probably the next 12 hours. Not that this matters, but those lights give people headaches on a typical day. It's horrible. That seems like an odd choice. I could turn them off. I didn't know that at the time because I couldn't think clearly. Mm, um, okay. I was holding onto the wall to just walk back and forth because my equilibrium was so thrown off. I went in and out of the sweats for the next five days, by the way, waking up in panic. Um, anyways, it, when you think of when you see in these movies where you walk up to the window and I'm going to get into the whys of this, by the way, people like I, I have some severe health issues going on that I am addressing and I still don't necessarily feel well while I'm talking to you. Um, with my mold exposure. And then, and then the biggest thing, which I haven't addressed on this podcast is I've been on antibiotics every six to eight weeks for the last almost eight to 10 years, because I have these chronic sinus issues and it's completely ruined my gut and the gut anxiety, alcohol piece for me is really related. And that's where this starts. So I'm going to get to all that. 
and try not to bore you along the way. But when you think of those movies and you have the people walk up to the desks and they look like hell and they're given a cup with medicine in it and you have to swallow it and make sure you do. That's what I was, that's what I was going through. Um, Probably the wrong time to have your mountain man beard and your in your long scraggly hair grown out. I fit right in there, Bracken, <laughs> with my company. There's a lot of people looking like me in there, but that is exactly the case. Um, <clears throat> that first, they basically the rule in detox is if you can go 24 hours without Valium, which is a nervous system suppressant, so you don't go into seizure or at least a seizure preventative you were medically cleared to leave. And I was told that. So my goal was to fight taking Valium so I could get the hell out of there. And so I took my last Valium at 5.11 p.m. I will never forget 5.11 p.m. on that Thursday so I could be released by Friday night. Um, So I technically spent less than 48 hours in there. Um, They check your vitals every four hours. It's just blood pressure and pulse. And then they drew a gamut of blood work to make sure I was okay. Liver enzymes, kidney function was great. They looked at me and said, Jesus, you're healthy as hell. You're one of the healthiest people we've seen in here. And I was like, well, it sure doesn't feel like it because my blood stats looked good because of my lifestyle outside of drinking. My drinking didn't accompany typically the other bad habits that came along with it. So anyways, check vitals every four hours. I was checked on every 15 minutes. They do what they call rounds to make sure I was okay or around. And they base your meds off of your vitals every four hours. Um, At that time, my heart rate was still spiking in the 100 to 120 range. And my blood pressure was up, which meant more volume for the first 24 hours. More volume every four hours on top of a host of other meds to make sure that you're medically stable. When I walked in, they said, what is your drug? And I said, alcohol. And the guy said, man, just so you know, you're in for for a very rough few days. He said, I'd rather you walk in on heroin or cocaine or acid or absolutely anything because those people are in the clear in here. You, uh, alcohol withdrawal is the absolute worst. We need to monitor you for seizures, possibly cardiac arrest and even death. How much have you been drinking? I said about 15 drinks a day for the last two weeks. And they said, it's going to be a tough go, man. Just hang in with us. And that's what I did. I think I got 30 minutes of sleep that first day. I think I slept two hours that next night. Um, And most of it was entailed with pacing up and down the hall or my room. I had no appetite. I didn't eat anything for the first 24 hours. Uh, They said, don't force it. And that would be the the beginning phase of uh, withdrawal and detox. And that sound like fun to you, Bracken? That's it. I I don't have a response. I have several responses. I don't know which, like, I feel guilty that I was off in Indiana running a race and meeting people at the venue who are saying they're, they love the show and they, mm-hmm. and I feel bad that then I was off seeing family after that. Like it was for a poor reason. It was for a funeral, but I had 59 people in town that I care about. And, and I got to see 59 people that I love and you during this time were by yourself living a miserable existence. That's not your fault, Bracken. It's nobody's fault. No, it's not, but it's a it's a stark contrast to the weekends we were having. And mm-hmm. and I know there's nothing that could be done, 
But because I don't think anyone outside of Jess grasped this, mm -hmm. there was nothing that was attempted to be done either. If it makes you feel better, I sent a version of the text I sent you more involved to my family who didn't know. I sent it to my mother, my father, my sister, my brother-in-law. Um, I sent that text in the morning, Bracken. When I sent that text to you, I was in bed at 7 a.m. drinking. Uh, I realized that this couldn't continue and that I needed to confess to the people that I cared about and loved. You were included in that. Not even my, you were the one in my, you were the only non-family member that got that text. Um, and, and I recognized that something, I was about to embark on something big. I was ignorant enough not to know how bad it would get, but I was also studied enough to know that I was in for a rough go. And so I sent that text out to everybody. So the point being is I didn't make a phone call. I said, I can't really talk about this right now. Just please, you know, I love you and I'm going through this and I will talk to you when I'm, when I'm on the other side or ready, when I can put together a coherent thought. So you were actually lumped in. Everybody else felt helpless too. And mm -hmm. Jess played quarterback for me. Jess called them on my behalf. Jess talked to everybody. Um, so you weren't, you weren't the only one. I mean, my own father oh, I know. felt like he was helpless. So. Yeah. It's not about me. It just, it, it puts in perspective how, how little any of us really know what's going on with anyone. You know, we're all fighting. Everybody listening to this is fighting their own silent battle, whether it's not pressing snooze on your alarm to get up and get your workout in, or it's, underlying depression or anxiety, which I definitely have the underlying anxiety piece. And after alcohol withdrawal, my goodness, my anxiety. I told Bracken before this recording, if we need to stop, I've still gone into like panic attacks and things like that because my nervous system doesn't have a suppressor on it anymore. But we're all, we're all fighting silent battles, folks. And, and I was fighting a big one that nobody knew about, including a man I'm talking to right now who I looked in the eyes twice a week for the last almost two years. So my own family who I talk to regularly. And so allow yourself some grace folks, if you're, if you're struggling with something and, and I opened up about it as soon as I knew it was really a problem. And, and all I can think about is like how the hell I've managed my life, especially the last, I'm going to say three months in particular, you know, I think I was doing okay before that with alcohol, drinking too much for sure for a healthy human, but not enough to ruin my life. But but how I, on earth I've managed this podcast, supported my athletes, showed up for my clients, was a good boyfriend, was a good friend, was a good family member, um, is beyond me, beyond this. And it came to the point where I felt like I wasn't being those things anymore. And I recognized that. And I knew that it was time. And that's why I did what I did when I did it, if that makes sense. Heck, I even, my athletes even know this. This sounds so, I don't even know how I did it, but I went and put almost 20 athlete plans together two days before going into detox because I didn't want my athletes left alone, sitting at my computer, having a drink, saying, I'm not leaving anybody hanging here. Jess sent out those plans on my behalf when I went into detox because I didn't want to leave anybody without something. And I think that's part of the problem and how I got myself into this position in the first place is I kept showing up for everybody else and, and I stopped showing up for myself is what happened. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's a trap that I somehow fell into. And I don't know why I think I'm going on a tangent now. Now it's just therapy, but I don't even know what prompted me to go down that route, but it. Well, with your permission, I want to treat you like a guest, if that's okay. Yeah, you can. I mean, it's, it'll be less sensitive because I'll ask direct questions, but Mm -hmm. I think that's the only way I know how to do this. Sure. So we know about the last two weeks. We know about the transition point before that slightly, but I get from the outside, it would seem that two weeks would have to be the cherry on the icing on the cake in order to create that level of dependency. The stem on the cherry on the icing on the cake. Right. Like I, I, I thought about it the other night and I thought, you know what, if I, one, I, I couldn't have 15 drinks a day for two weeks mm-hmm. because I, I wouldn't be able to handle that. But two, if I did, I don't think that could get me to that point. And so clearly like there was a, a buildup to this point. Mm-hmm. So my first curiosity is when did the buildup start? And I know these are the kind of things that are so subtle. They're slippery. They're sneaky. It, you know, a lot of people starts in college mm-hmm. and then college never ends for them. And I feel like that wasn't yours. Like your college ended for you because of medical issues. Mm-hmm. And then college started back up for you with the bachelorette where suddenly mm-hmm. Kirk DeWint's a hot commodity and we're going to pay you good money to come to clubs and promote parties and be seen yeah. with alcohol in your hand. And then there had to have been some point after that where it ebbed again and then flowed again. But when did this truly like start to lay down tracks? Um, looking back, it was 2015. Okay. I went on Bachelor in Paradise which was 21 days in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And I drank every day for 21 days, along with every single other person I was in company with. Mm-hmm. Um, not all day necessarily, but it's like what you did there. And and I'm not one to shy away from what I would call a good time in quotes. I enjoy a drink. I enjoyed that fun. And I came back and it became a little more commonplace to drink on a regular basis. But but by that, I mean, have a drink to unwind at night. You know, I would train until 830 at night in the gym and I would have to be back at 6 a.m. The turnaround time was short. I'd get home at nine. I'd make dinner. I wouldn't eat till 930. And I said, I need to get to bed. And I would have a drink at 10 o'clock at night to shut myself down. So I got six hours of sleep so I could go back to work in the morning and get up at five and be to the gym at six. And And it made it okay for me to do that bachelor in paradise, that drinking. And so after that, when I had those quick back-to-back nights and mornings, which I had three times a week, it became habit to have a drink so I could just get to bed so I get six hours of sleep so I could do it again the next day. Now, I guess for people that don't know you, sorry Mm -hmm. to interrupt you, for people that don't know you, you are a terrible, terrible sleeper. People talk about sleeping like a baby, like it's a good thing. Anyone who's ever had a baby knows that babies are <laughs> terrible sleepers and everything wakes them up and it's, it's difficult for them, for some babies to fall asleep. So I feel like you sleep like a baby. But part of that in hindsight is the alcohol. I would start to kind of sober up at 2, 3 a.m. from my nightcap and it would wake me up. I'm realizing this now that I'm 12 days without a drink. Okay. Um, I think it was tied to that. But looking back way to the beginning where I felt like it was okay to drink. It was going back to that. And then my quick turnarounds in the gym, just trying to get six hours of sleep because I had to do it three nights a week. 
um, that's when it became like, okay for me to drink alone. I've never drank alone before. It was like just three nights a week, roughly. And then maybe I'd go out on a weekend night with friends and drink, but the other four days a week would be alcohol free. Let's call it. And how long did that? So that's 2015. How long did that stay like that for before the next change in direction? 2018. Okay. Um, after beginning Spartan in 2016, 17, it was like that. 2018, I just accepted that, you know what? I'm going to have a nightcap every night. Because why? Because it puts me to sleep. And I was still working that quick schedule and it became such habit that I would have a nightcap. Um, that started in 2018, I would say, um, sometime. Um, yes, folks, this includes before races. This includes before hard workouts. This includes, without exception, anything else going on in my life. Um, sick, not sick. You know, I had the flu and I had a hot toddy before bed, let's say. Help me feel better, right? Is that a Midwest term? Lisa's mom is the only one I've ever heard say hot toddy. I don't know. I've just, it's always been a thing around my house. But so it went back to then. Um, around then, too, you know, my medical issues started flaring up worse and worse over the years. Jess is, and I have been dating for almost four years, and she can attest that my medical issues have gotten worse. And maybe it's synonymous, synonymous with the drinking, you know, or it's paralleled. But my GI system has got every round of antibiotics I take for my uh, sinus issues. My gut feels horrible and it feels worse. Every two months when I get prescribed this, it just knocks me down in life a little bit. It knocks me down in life and my gut gets worse and worse and worse. And I realized that whiskey calms the gut. And that became a problem for me. Uh, eventually that was infused in this. And so at some point I started leaning on it when I wasn't like, I'd be like, Oh, it's five o'clock. It's acceptable. Or I get home from work and I'm not feeling great. Well, now I make a drink while dinner's being made. And then I have another one before bed. And then that habit starts. And then that leads us all the way up until 2021 where you buy a lake house, you have friends and family over on the weekend. It's vacation time for everybody. When they come, I think I had company six weekends in a row. That's a drink in your hand, which again, I, I've enjoyed. I thought it was okay. But once you have one drink, you have to drink when you're at that point. Basically, you're committed to drinking until you go to bed because sobering up starts to feel like a miserable experience. And that started taking a hold these last few months with the house. And then my health really started to, you know, I think I missed a podcast episode or two because I had some really bad GI issues, some internal bleeding, some things. And, and that's when it really slipped for me. But that progression basically went from a nightcap every night, maybe going out with friends or two on the weekends. I don't go out. I haven't gone out in years now. So I don't binge drink, let's say, anymore. I haven't done that in a few years. But it, it became such an infused part of me being able to feel good. And then what that led to was a drink at dinner and then a drink before bed. That led to waking up at 3 a.m. with my heart pounding and in the sweats and realizing I got to be to the gym at 6 I'm not going to sleep. And then I became into the habit of pouring two shots of whiskey to get back to sleep, get two hours of sleep and go to the gym feeling like hell, feel like such hell that by noon the next day, you like can't tolerate it. And suddenly you slip and have a little bit of a drink again. And it becomes this slow, steady, awful, vicious cycle. And you just use alcohol to get you to the next, get you through the next four hours. And so I don't know if that satisfies your curiosity there. Well, it does. It sneaks up on you so 
badly that it it's too late. Like this, like this bear attack that I talked about that happened last year about this time was I could have done nothing about it. It had been on me before I even realized it. That bear could have killed me if it wanted to. That's exactly how this worked. By the time I realized it was coming, it was too late for me to do anything about it on my own. So that's how I feel like I ended up where I ended up. If that makes sense. It does. Mm-hmm. So it started as a social thing. Totally. And then it became an occasion thing. Mm-hmm. The occasion is work back-to-back nights. And then the the occasion started becoming less of a need for an occasion. It's after dinner. Now it's, we're making dinner. Now it's, oh, work's done for the day. The The reason for occasion changed and your dependency was building along with it kind of under the surface. Exactly. And and with that dependency becomes, um, and I talked to a few people in detox about this, which is super helpful that we're going through the same thing. But, but what happens is, is alcohol, uh, alcoholism becomes synonymous with anxiety and panic because of the nervous system suppression. Um, when you're drinking, when you come off it, your, your nervous system is so heightened that it becomes like extreme, extreme anxiety and panic, which we feel, which is what the intolerable feeling actually is. And then you try to numb it again. And so that led to me getting a psychiatrist about a year ago because my anxiety was so bad. I'd never experienced that in my life, getting prescribed meds, which again, you guys don't know about. Um, And really, I believe the underlying problem was both my gut and the alcohol. And so um, in that, so they both built together. And, and those two things sort of rolled me into this current situation, if that, if that makes sense. But you're right. It became, it was social and it was occasionally like, okay. And I, I, even those until 2020, I really didn't have any strong anxiety. It was the last year and a half or two where it all started to build. And I realized there might not be something right, but I'll kick this. Like I'll, I can kick this. I'll just have my nightcap for a week and then I'll go down to none. And I told myself I could do it. And I lay in bed trying to fall asleep without it many occasions with my heart racing and feeling like hell. And at midnight, I'd finally get up and go pour one and get to sleep. You know, I fought this fought fight as hard as I could for a while. Um, openly with Jess, but not openly with pretty much anybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So you have a two prong, like you're fighting a war on two fronts here, which is historically speaking, never very successful. And that is gut and alcohol. Um, they're tied together. So unlike getting into a war on two fronts in the military sense, you can't necessarily avoid this one. Mm-mm. So what, obviously the alcohol front has to lead because it's pressing. It's the one that's that's close to home. But at the same time, can you can you really kick it without the gut front being addressed? Yes, I believe I can. Getting over the initial hump is the worst, of course. But you know, it's funny as I went in and I said, you know, I believe this is all caused by an underlying medical condition that I'm trying to self-medicate with. And I believe that in my heart of hearts. Maybe it's the narrative I'm painting right now to feel better. And I want you guys to know, listening, like, I actually don't have any shame with this. I had no intent to become this way or have this happen to me. I had no malice or I wasn't harming people or ruining relationships. Like, I... I don't even necessarily hate who I was. It just won. Like I, I didn't mean for it to. It's 
you know, and, and I think, you know, this Bracken, I'm about as strong willed as anybody that, you know, yeah, I can fight my way through everything. Guys, I trained like a professional endurance athlete through that, like trained and got myself through this crap. I still couldn't beat this, but the two prong approach, I went in and I said, I think I have an underlying health issue. And they looked at me and they said, Kirk, I don't care. They said, alcohol is an underlying health issue. Let's address that first. You're not going to fix anything else until you fix this. And I was like, I needed to hear that. This is my main problem. Let's check one box before we move to the next. And so um, in case you're wondering, I've had a lot of doctor appointments. Um, I have two appointments with naturopathic physicians who are NMDs specializing in the gut. One lives in Denver, one lives here in Minneapolis. I've sent in blood, urine, stool samples. My stool samples came back atrocious. Like my gut biome is in such dysbiosis. Like it's one of the worst that this naturopath has ever seen um, as far as like overgrowth of things that shouldn't be in there and lack of things that should. There's no question why I feel like crap. I actually have an appointment tomorrow, which would be Tuesday and Wednesday with them for follow-up treatment protocols. I have plans in place with traditional medical doctors. I've been cleared on literally every front on a traditional sense. Um, so now I'm taking the steps to take care of myself and figure that out. So hopefully I can hit this from both sides. Um, also, I was approved to go to a inpatient alcohol facility. My insurance approved two weeks to go to Hazelden, which is one of the best facilities in the country. Um, I'm opting not to go by choice. Uh, for me to put my life on pause, I feel like would actually be detrimental to my mental health and recovery. The best thing is to have good people in my corner and try to do the things I enjoy, like podcasting with you and have people under close watch, talk to my psychiatrist about this and an alcohol counselor um, and try to move forward. And so um, point being is, yes, I'm addressing as much as I can on both fronts. I know I don't feel well, regardless of alcohol. I'm on day 12 and I still feel kind of like shit, if I'm being honest. Um, thank God for exercise. It has been my one outlet. Um, basically, I mean, for, for sure for the last few years, but in this last 12 days, you know, it seemed like it's been 12 months and exercise has been a big piece. I told Bracken before this recording, which isn't funny, but it's a little amusing. I said, Bracken, like where I'm at right now, I need to finish my workout and immediately get on the podcast. Cause that's the best window I have throughout the day. That's how much of a medicine that's stronger than any pill I've been given lately. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but my hope is yes. Like I, I can get ahead of this. And, and I think we talked about this bracket on the phone yesterday. It was like, like, do I think I can beat this? The answer is yes, absolutely. Why? Because I think I can do anything I set my mind to, but how many people before have said they're going to beat this? because they want to, and they're strong-willed. I'm naive to think I'm special, but I'm also smart enough to know I'm special. So I'm trying to navigate both of those two things yeah. with how to move forward. Well, it's the, it's the downside of being a high riser, right? I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but like you're not in the lower 90th percentile of anything you've done in your life. And, and as a result of that, like you're a successful business owner, you're, you're a successful athlete, you were an All-American in college, like at every level of everything you've tried, you've been one of the high flyers, one of the exceptions to the rule. Mm -hmm. 
And because of that, you have the skill set to accomplish about whatever you set your mind to. And because of that, you and I both have, and uh, as well as anyone who would in any version of their life consider themselves a high flyer. Not that I'm saying I'm like this incredibly high performer, but, but because of that, you and I both have an irrational sense of self-confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, it's why athletes can't let go. It's why they keep coming back. It's why people take wild chances with their money. It's because I haven't failed yet. I've had setbacks, but I've always overcome them. I'm, I haven't really failed yet. I'm going to be the exception to this. Mm-hmm. And so like you, Hazleton, you said, Hazleton, yeah. you turning down Hazleton is a red flag. And yet you turning down Hazleton is an option that most people wouldn't consider. Some would say, I don't want to go because I'm not sick or I don't want to go because of the stigma. You're saying, I don't want to go because I can beat anything. And like, there's a chance you absolutely will. And there's a chance that you look back and say, this is how it gets you. Well, it will be there. Um, first and foremost, it will be there mm-hmm. for me if needed. Second, I'm taking outside steps outside of inpatient recovery um, to get help. Um, third, um, this has been discussed at length with my family and we agreed upon this. My mom is with me right now. She's staying with me through the end of the week just as I'm sort of settling in, just to make sure I'm feeling okay, not to make sure I don't go grab a beer. Like, that's not my concern right now. I don't want to feel like that ever again. Nobody does who drinks. I think the one caveat and concern is I absolutely have an addictive personality. That's how I got into this position. It's part of the reason why I'm an endurance athlete. It's part of the reason why you listening are an endurance athlete. And believe it or not, you listening are more susceptible to falling into traps like this than the average non-endurance athlete or exerciser. There are parallels between alcoholism and endurance or compulsive exercise, more parallels than you know or think. So point being is I also know that tendency of me, which my addictive personality can let me obsess over things. It's what's made us successful, you know, but it's also can be your biggest blessing and your biggest curse. And so, um, again, I know some of you are probably listening, saying, yes, you should have gone and done that. Um, And it was discussed for hours with counselors there. It was discussed for hours with my family and loved ones. My other options have been explored and I'm choosing them as we speak. Um, So just know I'm making very conscious decisions um, about that. So you can feel comfortable in that, I guess, is what I'm saying. It is interesting, though. I was in um, I was in detox and most of these people are pretty low income. They haven't done much with their lives. And they were talking about after you get out of detox. And I was really barely able to hold on to a conversation at this point, And neither were they. So being a fly on the wall for these conversations had to be almost comical, if I'm being honest. And they said, what is your plan? And they said, well, you know, I don't have insurance or I have this. So I'm getting bumped up the next floor to the hospital's recovery program, which is two weeks, which is more covered by insurance or it's cheap. It's maxed out at 3,500 bucks and that'll cover you for however. And they said, what about you? And I said, oh, I just got... I just got pre-approved for Hazelden um, to go there. So everybody else has basically taken the elevator up one floor to recovery. And they look at me and they go, you got into Hazelden? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And they said, man, take a vacation at the country club. Go enjoy yourself and have a vacation, man, for a month. You deserve it. They have this huge hundred acre facility with lakes and a full gym and like all the facilities and counselors and 
and everything. And everybody told me to go on a vacation to, re- to alcohol rehab at Hazelden. I still turned that down because I think life outside of that is going to be more therapeutic for me than the country club. And what was the counselor's response to that initially? Uh, that was not shared with the counselors. That was shared with my peers. No, I'm talking about when you said, I, I've been thinking about declining this. Well, you said you discussed this decision with them. I didn't discuss it with people in detox. They okay. are alcohol. They are detox special nurses. Um, no counselors are in there. Who did you um, say you discussed it with? My peers who were in there for detox as well. No, oh, sorry. Moving back, you had said, and I, I discussed this decision oh, of turning correct. it down with X, Y, and Z. Who, who are those people? Two separate uh, intake specialists at Hazelden. Okay. And recovery counselors. We talked about it at length, talked about it at length with an outpatient uh, provider, and then talked about it. And what was their take on everything? Um, they're very understanding. It's non-judgmental. They do not pressure you. They talk it out and understand pros and cons. Let's chat. Um, Hazelden, I had two of the best conversations I've ever had. They asked me questions that uh, made me feel understood by just asking it and not judged and a place of welcome. Okay. And so they're very good. But discuss with them like real concerns. Hey, my concern is, can I get on my email so I can keep my my athletes happy? Because it's a big concern for me if I do go do this. Um, as you and I discussed, I bought a new lake house. Like finances are, I haven't been to work in the gym in three weeks. Like finances are a little concern for me. So going away for a month isn't necessarily going to make me feel better. Um. And so all those things were discussed and open about what the best decision was. So if that helps answer your question. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so um, what other questions are, are top of mind for you? Well, I guess the the road seems ill-defined because we don't know what the road's even going to look like. You're on day 12. Like I'm sure it's felt like a year. And at the same time, you've got years ahead. So what... Like, what is this? You're, because your life is infused with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you and I have a training weekend, we go out to a restaurant. Like that's a pattern. And when we go to the hotel the night before, like you have your nightcap, that's a pattern. And you live on a lake, which is synonymous in, especially in the Midwest with the lake lifestyle. So what, I guess, what is your self-prognosis for where you go from here? I don't know. And you know what? That's okay. It's one of those gray areas in life where it has to be one day at a time. And if you if you lose sight of the process, just like it is with training, if you lose sight of today, you're going to lose sight of tomorrow. And if suddenly the big picture is going to be meaningless. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it is checking today's box and then checking tomorrow's box. And then ideally, eventually, it becomes a new thing where... It's not hour to hour and day to day. It becomes the norm. And it's slowly becoming that. Um, I mean, it's just been 12 days, which certainly isn't long enough. But I, I don't think I can I can project, man, because I think that would be irresponsible to kid myself with that. So I'm taking training principles of workouts and how to approach training, which is one day, one workout at a time. And little victories add up to big results. And so little victories are what I'm working towards right now. Um, And that's where absolutely my endurance training and coaching has translated to this. Like 
the the detail or the details in the fabric or whatever like the the, the devil's in the details and it certainly is with this forests and trees and whatnot Forest, babies and bathwater it, it's all of that yep <laughs> it's all of that so i would love to say yes like i got my plan or i got i know what the future is going to hold i don't and I, I think that's the only honest answer i can give and i don't even necessarily know if this means alcohol isn't going to be a part of my life forever or if it means like you know, it's okay to reintroduce at some point, but right now the answer is like I'm on the I'm on the straight and narrow the best I can, and I'm working on my health. And mm-hmm. and I was on the phone with you yesterday, Brack, and and what I say about my my fitness and what I think about it. If I can, you said people might be in trouble, and I can stand here confidently and say that even what my my body's doing now, twelve days removed. Um, I'm a little embarrassed to confess this one thing, but I told you on the phone yesterday, Bracken, and I think it's important for people to get an insight. Um, I can be DQ'd for this if if Spartan wants, but but I raced Jacksonville in February with alcohol in my system. Um, and and I was going through training in life like that. You know, that night, um, my habit was pick up a small bottle of whiskey at the liquor store. I didn't hide that from you, Bracken. I said, I need to go get my liquor for a nightcap. That's my routine before a race. Little did you know that was my routine every night. Um, I had that. I woke up at like 3.30 in the morning with my heart racing and the sweats. And I waffled over like, do I just stay up and feel like hell? And I was feeling anxious. And what did I do? I sat up in my bed and I drank liquor till about 4, 4.15 in the morning. Fell back asleep until 5.30. Woke up and went and ran a damn race. I ran workouts like that sometimes this last year. I ran training runs, of course. Um, not always, don't get me wrong. These were occasions still at this point, but it was it got the best of me that day. And I showed up and, and I raced Jacksonville. I had to have alcohol in my system still at 7.30 in the morning. So like, that was one of my signs. I, I came home and told Jess that. I was, I was like, this is what I did. Like, we need to keep it in check. And I did keep it in check the next week or two. I was like, let's be diligent. I got something I need to work on. But for perspective, folks, that's how infused this thing was in my life, um, which that should have been a dead giveaway, right, Bracken? Like, that's pretty obvious as a problem. Yeah, but it's like anything. I mean, we don't need to make excuses for you, but anything you do, you become dulled to, right? And, and we become good at explaining away. And, you know, a lot of people do it with caffeine, Mm-hmm. I, it, you know, it's ironic, really. A little Alanis Morissette over here. A lot of mm-hmm. irony floating around this house. Lisa and Macaulay are talking about, uh, what, what's it called? Sober October? Uh, sure. Yeah, Sober October. Sure. That's I, got thing, a jump, right? I got a jump start on you guys. Well, they're talking about doing it with caffeine. Okay. And Macaulay is like, I think I'm just going to do it. But... Um, if I get to the point where my headaches are so bad that I'm not productive, like I have to be able to earn a living. So I'll probably have like a small amount of caffeine, but I'm going to try to do it cold Turkey if I can. And Lisa's like, Oh no, not me. Like I'll have no wine for October, but I'm not, I'm not going to do caffeine. So I'm going to feel terrible. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, I, I, I didn't even participate in the conversation. I just kind of <laughs> sat there and watched realizing like I'm watching Kirk's conversations he was having with himself all the time. The only difference is there's uh, two different stigmas with caffeine and alcohol. Mm-hmm. But like both produce a physical dependence and obviously to much, much, much different lengths. 
and severities. But it was very interesting watching this one day, two days, five days after your process, mm-hmm. seeing the exact same thing play out in just what you would say, quote unquote, normal household in America. Oh, I got my headache coming. I better need a cup of coffee. And to say, wow, that's not, that is a non-issue to us, but a yep. tremors from a, I need my shot of whiskey is a significant like, judgment point. So I'm not looking to make excuses for you, but it again, mm-hmm. very ironic, very clarifying for me to be able to watch that conversation and say, this is how easy it happens. Well, Lisa and Macaulay, I also cut out caffeine on the same day I cut out alcohol. I did them both at the same time. So if I can do both, you can fucking do caffeine at minimum. I'm telling you, <laughs> I did them both at the same time, which was suggested, by the way, because caffeine just amps up your nervous system when you're going through that as well. But um, yeah, man, I like I said, I if I if I let anybody down who's listening, knowing this, I'm sorry. It it wasn't by intent. I've tried to be the best human I can be through this. And I think that's what got me in trouble is I tried to be the best human I could be for everybody else. And I started drinking to do so when I wasn't feeling well to get through the day, to be there for you listening and for everybody else. And, and for that, I I don't even, I don't even know what to make of it, but it's, it's at least, you know, partially the truth. And it's time that I start showing up for myself equally. Yeah. Um, and that's what last week was about. And, and it also was about the fact that I was almost incoherent to have a real conversation. Alcohol withdrawal is real. Um, if you know anybody struggling with it, I would definitely encourage you to reach out to them as well. Um, coming from a point of understanding uh, is way more helpful than coming from a point of judgment. It can happen to anybody. It can happen to the smartest of smart overachievers and it can happen to the lowest of low not doing anything with your life person it is non-discriminatory it's something that i initially was very ashamed of and embarrassed of and that's why i didn't talk about it i didn't come out with it i didn't share it necessarily with my family because i thought it implied weakness it doesn't it implies if you are at least open about it and wanting to change it implies strength and i don't feel ashamed and I don't feel embarrassed and I'm not perfect. I never have been, but certainly in this regard. And I think ultimately, you know, I've gone through a lot of growing in my life. I feel like I've lived a lot of life, they will say, in my 38 years. And I think this is just going to be another um, another life perspective that I can hopefully use for the better moving forward. Whether I beat this now or it comes back and bites me. Or if I beat it, or I never look back, I don't know. Um, but I'm not thankful for it right now, if I'm being honest. It's too close. I'm only a little bit it's angry. It's a tough thing to be thankful for. I'm a little bit angry. I'm a little bit, I'm very scared. Um, and and very uncertain. And so I'm not thankful for this at this point. And I'm not going to pretend to be. I hope I can, in six months, come back on and say I'm thankful for this. Um but it's taught me how to fight. I'll tell you that much, like in a way that you can't train out on the track or the trails or the roads. And my hope is that it will translate because if you go through something like this um, and you can get over it, I, every mountain seems like a molehill. And I mean that metaphorically and literally, 
Um, yeah. So that is my hope. All right. Well, I'm going to, I guess, finish by putting you on the spot. We didn't discuss what our response from you would be here, but yeah. this is one of those things where because we've let people into our lives, people come into our lives digitally. You're going to receive a lot of responses from this. And I guess I want you to enunciate out to all of us here what you want right now. Because I don't know if an outpouring of anything is what you want. And I don't know if crickets would be mentally helpful to you either. So I want to know like, if people are interested mm -hmm. in showing support or sharing their story, because substance dependency and abuse exists throughout everywhere. Like it's always shocking how little we notice it. But so so people are going to have connections, positive, negative, anecdotal, personal stories. What do you want here? What's best for you right now for people to do? Um, good question. Uh, thanks for asking that, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I, If you feel compelled to reach out and say something, I, I absolutely want to hear from you. Um, I think this is a time where feeling supported is super important for me. It's fuel to keep me going in a positive direction. Um, I understand a few of you might pass judgment. And if you have something negative to say, I understand, but maybe try to keep that to yourself. Um, I'm taking the rest of this week off of gym clients. I'm still just trying to get myself straight. So I do have a little more time this week. I'm just focusing on my athletes, which I have a lot of as well and require a lot of my time. But um, I, I don't mind if people reach out. I appreciate, I think at this point, I would, I appreciate, I would appreciate only if you feel compelled, not if you feel obligated, that's ridiculous um, to say something. It's okay. I, I don't want people to shy away from that. If it's helping them express themselves, because maybe I can help somebody too. Um, and like I said, I am, I am a greenhorn when it comes to this. Like I may have endurance training somewhat loosely figured out, but like this, I don't. So I don't necessarily have a lot of answers, but um, I would be happy to hear from people, I think. And and I feel vulnerable right now. I think um, it's a vulnerable thing to share, especially with people who have had our backs for so long and have had our support. And then to hear that somebody that maybe you look up to wasn't who you thought they were at times, or maybe at least a different version of who you thought they were which is incorrect, by the way. I'm still me. I was me. I'm going to continue to be me. Uh, you will still get the same chipper banter for me moving forward. It didn't affect my personality. So what you got is still what you're going to get. But um, it's okay for people to, re to reach out. If I'm slow to respond, like, whatever, that's fine. But um, it's not a conversation I necessarily envisioned ever happening on this podcast, Bracken. And Nor I. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Huh? Um, but it felt a little bit like therapy and in an odd way to talk about it openly because that's kind of part of the of the first step. And they talk about recovery and amending mending relationships you've broken and all these other things. And I'm like thinking like I don't know what I have to mend in that regard because I really tried hard to not ruin things with all of this. So um it's gonna be business as usual as it can get. I will say that um, as a host of this podcast and an endurance podcast and as an athlete myself, um, I am very, very encouraged for my own racing and performing moving forward. If I can keep um, clean and progress, uh, even in my workouts recently, um, 
something I didn't share. And by the way, it had such a powerful effect on me that I told you this yesterday, Bracken, but um, my heart rate was in the 170s on recovery runs at 7 or 7.30 pace for the first seven days post-recovery. My, my heart rate was sitting around 100 beats a minute for many days in a row. And then finally, the withdrawals ended at about, slowly ended about day seven. I still am dealing with all the anxiety and stuff because my nervous system needs to repair. But man, if I'm, if I'm doing what I did on the lifestyle I was living, my glass is still half full bracken. I can't wait to see what the hell I can do on a lifestyle in which doesn't include alcohol and limited sleep. Um, even some of the things I just did today, this morning, which is the tip of the fitness iceberg and recovery has me really encouraged. And I started thinking about narratives other people have written. Hobie Call winning the world champs at 39. Cody Moat winning the world champs at 39. Ryan Woods winning the U.S. National Series at 39. Folks, Kirk DeWitt's going to be 39 next year. And, and I truly believe that I can come back um, better than I ever have been as long as I can do the things to keep me healthy over here. And so I'm optimistic that this can be a rebirth. And I guess time will tell there, but um, I think I just want to end that on a, a positive note because it's been a pretty serious conversation, but like my rose tinted glasses are still on mm -hmm. parts of my life. And so I'm hanging on to those things. But to answer your question, yes, reach out if you feel compelled. Thanks for listening. Uh, to this all. This is not teaching you anything about endurance training. And I know that's what you listen for. So sorry about that. But I just think it's going to set the stage for moving forward a little bit for me. And um, that's where I'm at. I think that's, I think that's enough right now. I did a lot of talking there, Bracken. Sorry about that. No, that was helpful. I mean, you talked about a therapy session. This was as illuminating for me as, as, as the audience. And this is one of those that I don't know. We, I just had this discussion with a couple people for a couple different reasons. And Hunter on the most recent episode was one of those talking about difficult conversations with people. And we, we had a situation in our personal life where this, this happened. And, and I'm a firm believer that arguments, fights, blow ups, difficult conversations are, is like slash and burn farming. The burn is destructive and it is regenerative. It provides fertile soil underneath that if you are intentional about what happens after the burn, that there is room for real positive growth. Mm -hmm. I think this is why people have to not avoid difficult conversations with people that they care about because true caring about people is having the hard conversation now so that you can have the fertile ground immediately afterwards. Man, if that's not it's a great analogy. You nailed it. But that's what this feels like to me. Like we had one of these in our family a couple of weeks back where it felt like in the moment, like what if this is a fracturing point with the relationships with some of these people and realizing the next day, like if we, I think we're capitalizing on this. I think we're all going to be better for having had this, yep. you know, those tough conversations, the slash and burn technique is, is necessary sometimes to cut out the stunted undergrowth and to just have fresh, clean, fertile soil for what's coming next. Yeah. And I think my, my fire is still smoldering. Yeah. I'm not even to the regrowth phase. Um, but man, that's a, I'm going to hang on to that one, Bracken, actually. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's all yours. It would have been better if it was like, 
car analogy, but um, <laughs> you're doing your best over there. You know, you're doing your best. But I mean, the point is like you've done the hardest part, which is set the field on fire. Oof, man, and it it hurts. And now the second part is now you have to watch the field. Mm-hmm. You have to monitor the field. And the moment it's ready to plant something or to till, you you do that. And so, like you said, I don't have a long-term plan right now. No, it's just waiting on that next opportunity to make sure that the ground stays fertile. Yep. And that's it. You're, you're doing the, the, the step correctly. Yeah. A lot of people never fully set that field on fire. And looking too far ahead would, would be toxic, not toxic, but unhelpful. It is. It's one step at a time. What do you do first? You light the field on fire. Next, you let it burn. Three, you let it smolder. Four, you let it rest. Five, you decide how to regrow. And I'm somewhere in the smolder phase. Um, I, I don't feel very well still. And my body, it, you know, I feel sick a lot. I'm still having fevery type stuff and uh, still some withdrawal symptoms even 12 days later. But um, eventually I hope that all that all that gets in line. And I will say moving forward as far, you know, I, I'm going to prioritize my health. Um, this is probably the hardest you know, one of the harder battles I've ever fought in my life. Well, the hardest for sure, I'm I'm guessing, as I continue to go through this. But there may be a day or two where I can't, I need to just, might be an anxious day or a panic day. That's been something I'm hoping will get better with time now that I don't have this nervous system depressant in my body. But, you know, Bracken and I will kind of come up with a contingency plan if if I can't record for an episode one week or something, um, if that becomes an issue, just know, like, I'm still here. I'm hoping to be here consistently moving forward. Um, but if that is the case, like, just, just know that might happen probably, and hopefully won't, but if it does, should again, allow some grace and understanding as I'm, you know, trying to, trying to give myself a little more love, uh, these days when necessary. So just want to preface, preface moving forward with that. I'm going to echo something we said right before we launched our online training plans, which is we gave a hundred episodes out for free before we even thought about requesting an opportunity for someone to, to invest money into something we do. Like we gave you a hundred episodes. We wanted to prove who we were, what we were worth, that we had something of value. And now hopefully we've earned your trust to trust that what we're going to try selling you is, is worth having. And now I'm going to say it again. We've put out 170 episodes and I would hope that we could have a little bit of grace and trust that we're going to continue doing so. When the next speed bump hits, if it hits, we're, we're going to like this one. We, we missed one episode for with an unforeseen, totally hitting us right in the face out of nowhere issue. And we missed one and now we're prepared for the next one. So don't, uh, don't hit the panic button on us just yet where we, Kirk and I both talked the like, this changes nothing in terms of our vision. This is still like, it sounds funny to say our retirement plan, but like, this is what I plan on doing until I retire. I wouldn't say this is the the million dollar retirement plan, but this is the get me to retirement. I don't plan on doing anything else. The running public is my baby. It's Kirk's baby. And it's, we're going to yep. keep growing this thing. Yeah. It changes nothing for us. And I certainly hope it, it changes nothing for you is, is how I look at it. And we're humans living real lives and, and busy lives. And no, we're not getting paid for this. We have zero sponsors. Like this isn't necessarily, you know, Bracken's family is always going to come first. And right, right now my health is always going to come first. But damn it, you guys are a close second. I mean, 
right now. And that's what we had sort of discussed. So it doesn't change anything moving forward for us. That's exactly right. This this highlighted to me this weekend, and I had this conversation with with one of my my cousins who was in. Um, he said, "Why don't you guys have sponsors?" And I said, "I think this weekend highlighted why we don't have sponsors. Mm-hmm. Because if we had to take a life occurrence, we weren't under pressure to do something stressful or put out a product that was just inferior. If we had to put out a a slop together episode on Friday, it just wouldn't have been good. And we also can come on here and talk about anything we want." with no pressure or blowback from sponsors. And whether that's promoting two competing brand shoes or talking about alcohol dependency for a training Tuesday, like it allows us to do whatever we feel needs to be said at the time. So it was, it was a refreshing, uh, maybe mm-hmm. not a refreshing, it was a reaffirmation of me, to me this weekend that I think this is, this is a good example of why we haven't monetized the podcast. Yeah. I'm actually going through that a little bit. Um, so I've got I've got two really big sponsors that are are paid sponsors and support me no matter what. They've been fantastic. As an athlete. Um yeah, I'll just openly say, I mean, Gone Rogue and A Shock Energy are both supporting me um as a human, as who I am. And I and I'm my, I'm hopeful that this is part of that. Um Athletic Brewing, by the way, uh if you could reach out at this time, it would be very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> a little non-alcoholic beer in your life. Uh, yeah, athletic brewing, and I'm sure you don't listen to this, but uh, I would definitely be a be a good candidate for your product. Um, but I've wrestled a little bit because you know I have to uphold the the Gone Rogue and the A Shock um, stuff, and and I want to for them. They've treated me so well, um, but also it's kind of like one of the last things on my mind right now, and so that's been a tough balance. And so having that there is really nice to not have that with the podcast is what I'm getting at because I'm feeling that pressure on a personal level. Um, like is posting about chips necessarily like meat chips necessarily like top of my priority list? No, but I do like their product, believe it or not. And they do support me. So anyways, yes, I am affirming that not having sponsors on this for that reason is actually a breath of fresh air for me. And you said it was a breath of fresh air or whatever it is. And it actually is on my end. Well, every time I log into Podbean to upload our newest, it says you could be earning X number of dollars per month if all of your thousands of listeners just gave one dollar. And every time I look at it, I think, well, that would be nice. Mm. Yeah, maybe we. But but no, there's there's some things not worth monetizing and our sanity is one of them. That's true. And I'm not above saying we're never going to have a Patreon or something if we try to really push this thing. But right now it just, it hasn't felt right yet. So, um, all right, Manuel Bracken, thank you for listening. Sounds like you said Manuel. All right, Manuel. All right, man, comma, well. How did you know my nickname was Manuel? (laughs) Oh, oh, I do have naming. I have naming news to share. The truck has been named. Oh, what has your truck been named? Ruby. Is that a girl? Yes, it's a girl. Is, it a, is your truck also a stripper? No, that was my grandma's name. Oh, now I feel real bad. No, I'm just kidding. Her name was Mary Ellen, and she was a saint. Now she's a she's a uh, a burgundy. Oh, that makes sense. What did you get again? Why is it slipping my mind? F one fifty. F one fifty. Yeah, that's a good truck right there. And we took it out, Lisa and I, for our first time riding in it together. We went for a date run and we ran, the. we parked right off of Ruby Road 
and the neighborhood was Ruby Hills or something like that. And it's just like, you know what? That confirms it. She's a Ruby. I haven't named my truck or my boat. <laughs> Is it really a boat or a truck yeah. yet? Maybe I'll have, to have you named your camper? On that one. Nothing, no. Oh, well, our camper is Arnold. Arnie for short. Arnie. So Arnie and Ruby are going to be getting along just fine. I'll work on, I'll come up with that. We can, let's follow up on that. The truck, the boat, and the camper. I'll come up with something. I guess that's one of those things you can't force. So maybe don't put a timeline on me and name in my things, but I'll come no, up No, no, I don't want to. I, I, I want it to fit. You, it's got to roll off the tongue naturally. Like, well, of course she's a Ruby. Like, yeah, our, you take a look at our camper and he's absolutely an Arnold. All right. So you just got to, when you know, you know, Kirk. All right. It's like falling like in it. love or finding the right trail shoe. Is that how it works? When you know when you slide when you slide your foot in there and it just goes, ah, yep, this is mine. Wanna know one of my favorite new shoes? And then we're ending this thing. Uh the Hoka Zanal. Ooh, you got one, huh? I got one. Love it. Responsive, firm, yet just enough there. Not that all that Hoka cushion you don't need, yet just enough. Um, God, great for the roads, pack trails. I'm a huge fan. It's going to replace my, my Evo Speed Goat if Evo Speed Goat is out of stock. Fantastic shoe. Hoka all. I highly recommend it. All right. Well, th- I was looking at that. My final statement or question on this podcast, because this is now just a, a long run episode. And maybe Friday we'll put out a training Tuesday. But yeah, how does it compare protection and cushion wise to the Evo Speed Goat? Less protection, less cushion. Okay. A little racier feeling. And tighter. And it, it hugs your foot tighter. Okay. Is it more stable on technical terrain? But you never stable. struggled with the Evo. It's lower profile. It's a hair more stable. Yep. It's a mix between, if you took like the torrent and bred it with the Evo Speed Goat, it's like in between the two, but a tighter, but a snugger fit. That's exciting. Great shoe. There. See, now we're getting some running content out there. There you go. So what course would you take it on? The lugs aren't terribly aggressive. I think you could get out away with it on any course, uh, truly, but more the hard packed West coast courses. If you're in mud up to your ankles, you might want more aggressive lugs because it's shallower lugs. Is that your Tahoe shoe? Don't know yet. You haven't descended in it. Uh, not yet, but I'm going to go to Afton on Thursday and give her a rip. So I'll let you know and get back. You know? Although that's what it was made for. Yeah, it was made for that. So anyways, if anybody's looking for a new shoe, that's fast yet. Also you can make it a daily trainer. The Hoka Zanals. I'm a big fan. All right. Well, I'm breaking my own last sentence, Earl. I purchased a pair of shoes courtesy of Rich Ryan, actually. Okay. He sent me a running warehouse gift certificate because he's a real mensch. I, he said, get something fast, and I didn't. I wanted to start running with Lisa again. Talking about getting back to our basics, I wanted to start doing that more with her because I have a schedule that I can do that. So why not set it up to to benefit yep. my life? But I don't have a single road shoe for just running easy miles. I have every road racing shoe you could ever imagine. I have nothing to just run easy miles in because I cannot do that currently in the Carbon X. Right. Because I haven't run enough road. Those shoes are too firm. They beat my quads up. So I bought the Skechers Max Road 5. Okay. And they are bliss to run in. Dude, Skechers is nailing their road line. Oh, it's Nail. so good. And Macaulay has been stealing them to run in. And he said it's the moment he gets back, he's ordering a pair. So if you want a maximum cushion, the light shoe that you can still, you could even tempo in. But it's great, just made for easy miles. Skechers Max Road 5 sorted out everything that was wrong with the 4 and made it even better. So I feel about the Clifton by Hoka as well. That's a little spongy, but... Beautiful. All right. Yeah. 
There we go. Look at that. Running episode. Running episode. Label it. Um, All right. I'm going to wrap this thing up. As I was saying, well, comma, man. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening back. And I appreciate your support and no judgment. Our conversation yesterday confirmed that. And listeners, thank you for listening. Um, And again, hopefully not passing judgment and only understanding and uh, should be back to the regularly scheduled program moving forward. So, well, thank you for opening up. I, I tell every guest that thank you for being forthcoming because it's the only way to get a, a real true message across. And Kirk, you're mine until the end of time and I'm yours. And uh, you just remember that for richer, for poor and sickness and in health. I won't forget that back. And if we could hug through the screen right now, I would man hug you for sure. You're going to roll the music just like that.